How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the Cinema Sci Show Podcast, <laughs> episode 254. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've ever done that. Have we? The guests come in in our, in our intro intro. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I, I, took 254 episodes. I wasn't sure if I was getting introed or if I was getting... And then there was you a pause. we <laughs> never done that before. I that, like it. That was probably on me. Because I like looked at you and be like, and Steven. <laughs> and it was like, but yeah, that actually isn't how we do no, it. Fair enough. Welcome, <laughs> Mr. Stephen Clark, back Thank to you. the Cinema Sideshow podcast. I'm completing the, the, the trilogy of, of appearances. You are. Yes, I we feel do. Like. It's a yeah. great way to, to finish it off, right? So the first one you did was uh, before Whiplash, and the second one you did was before Memories of Murder, and now we're doing before Napoleon. <laughs> the before trilogy, sorry, before Stephen. Trilogy. <laughs> Is that your favourite trilogy? It was until very recently when I completed the Apu trilogy, oh. which is now my favourite trilogy. Um, Excellent. But yes. Wow. Yeah. Not the Lord of the Rings trilogy? I mean, Lord of the Rings is kind of a cop-out, like, because it's just yeah. like... it's. Obviously, just like the greatest Epic. thing ever, <laughs> the goat. I'm really happy we had, we did that in consecutive episodes. Too. Yeah, it was, that was yeah. cool. Yeah, it was genuinely fun to revisit that film after quite a few years too, um, and actually talk about it critically. I've never talked mm. about it critically. That was the thing. You know, you grew up with watching it. You, wa- I watched it so many times, but I've never thought like, w- no one's ever come at me like, why do you like Lord of the Rings or why why is this a good thing. So to be able to sit there and talk about it was really cool. Mm. Um, On a deeper level, yeah. Jake, do you have a 254 quote? I do, I do. I was trying to, I was racking in my head how I was going to get into it. But, um, you know, we are free men, of course, the three of us on this podcast. Free men, 254 kilos. What could the kilos be referring to, guys? It's probably close to our weight. <laughs> being nice, a bit, really nice to me. I'm probably about nearly half of that. Then. <laughs> I imagine that's uh, drugs or cocaine or I some some substance uh, that Jason Statham is talking about in the transporter. Ah, uh, and, and he says that. that a lot. 254 kilos. He says that a lot throughout that movie. Apparently, mm. I've never seen it. Neither. No. No. Neither. <laughs> To be honest, we're free men who don't know what <laughs> the 254 kilos are. I never got the Jason Statham thing. Like mm. I never got why. Like he has a nice voice, like a like he's got a like an attractive mm. voice, but he, other than that, he's just a bald man. Like he's a lesser Bruce Willis. He's a sl- <laughs> he's, he's slightly more aesthetic Vinnie Jones. Like. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh goodness! Well, I'm excited to have you back on, Stephen. Thank you. As the third man. Ah, last ah, week's shadow. Great film. There you go. It's a fantastic film. So you go listen, listen to four five to two five three. My goodness, what's <laughs> going on? But I was going to say, so obviously we just joked, but the last time you were on here in a in a proper a non cameo fashion was a Memories of Murder. Yes, way back when. And um, I was about to make a joke about you've become a father since then, but you actually were a father when we recorded that episode. <laughs> I was already fathering. Like yeah. two or three weeks or something, because that was, I mean, March 1st. Yeah, wow. Was when that episode How dropped. the hell did I have time to do I a know. podcast episode? It actually makes a lot of sense when you think about that. Like, where, why did you come and do a podcast episode? <laughs> what does that say about me as a father? Yeah. <laughs> It's oh, alright. Henry will hear this one day. Exactly. Know that you neglected him at three weeks old to come do an episode. <laughs> Be too late by then, Henry. <laughs> but you know, Bon Joon Ho, so he would he would know. Yeah, he, he gets he, it. Yeah, he gets it. Yeah. yeah he'll Henry, make, Henry he'll will make definitely... sure he gets it. Oh yeah, he definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> but Zeke. What's up? 
Is there any fun trivia facts for the film we are talking about next with Stephen? Napoleon. Well, there's there's plenty. Um, I mean, most of us in the lead up to the show heard, um, or lead up to this film, might I say, heard there would be a director's cut, and obviously Ridley Scott, very famous for his infinite amounts of director's cuts and limited cuts, particularly with the original Blade Runner film, um, and has actually mm. gone on to say that the four-hour director's cut of this film, the film running at, what, two hours 35? Something like was, that. Um, will be released on Apple TV for all those lovely people that want to sit there for four hours. <laughs> I actually kind of do, but I'll get into that. I'll get into that later. We'll get into the why soon enough. That's fair enough. Well, my fun little trivia about the film, um, there's obviously quite a few battle scenes throughout the film, sort of peppered in through there. And uh, I think Mr. Sir Ridley Scott, I didn't realise that he's a sir. Yeah, he got like knighted like, only like 10 years ago. I think. Oh, okay. So Paul Queen died. Mm, after oh. Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> that was the film that did it. <laughs> no, but he says that there were up to 11 cameras utilised at once during many of these battle sequences, which I was surprised because there is sort of this... I mean, when you look at this, the number of people on screen, the amount that's happening, and I'm sure there's a lot of CG blurred into all of that stuff, but it's a lot of cameras to be going on at once mm. for someone who is as controlled as Sir Ridley Scott. Mm, that's ah, a good just, point. Just film, just put eleven cameras there and just hit record, and what whatever happens happens. <laughs> good luck. Then A twenty three will pick it up. Or... <laughs> <laughs> that's a great one. Uh, but now Stephen, I do. You... A, I do have a. Quick you do have fact a. Tri- if you, oh, if you want, there you if go. You want, Excellent. You I didn't want to throw you under the the bus there, but it's okay. <laughs> you got a trivia fact for us. I do have a trivia fact. Um, Napoleon is kind of a nerd spot for me. Um, mm. So um, the, the, I. I, I love history and I love specifically that period of history and Napoleon and um, one one thing for the keen-eyed observer that you might notice is a lot of the conversations that take place between Napoleon and Josephine in the film mm. are actual direct quote-for-quote quote, uh, letters that he actually wrote oh. um, and a lot of them are quite famous uh, letters and um, and so in the script that was a really interesting point that he, he utilised um, actual written conversations they had for dialogue. So what you're saying is when it comes to historical accuracy, he's very selective. Very selective. <laughs> <laughs> and not to jump into the film of the week, but sure. there is a particular scene that does basically allude to the leakage of those letters to a sort of allow that there's a whole aspect mm. that the valet sells those letters off yep. in the film. Right. In the, the latter stages of the film, so... And it ends up in the lap of Connor Roy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it makes me sad. I, I know. Succession now. Succession. There we go. You haven't been on since Succession finale. That's man. true. Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> I know we normally jump into what we've watched in the last week, but that might be a good point, because obviously one of the biggest fans of the show off the air is, is definitely been you Stephen you've talked about so you have a whole essay on the ending <laughs> of succession yeah I love that show so much like mm. as you guys both know very well um like that was that was for me like just one of the all-time great landings of a show like I think mm. that they really suck it in like such an impactful way and I think that it's one of those shows that's going to stand the test of time so well and I just honestly like one of the without going into all the plots and stuff because we're not talking about that really today sure. but I just hope that all those actors just get, like, the so awards. Like, I just hope they find a way to make them all win because, like, they just went crazy in that final season. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so rare that you have a show that is so complete and I really don't really feel like it has a down season. Um, 
and it just mm. ended in such a strong fashion. So I've I've put the because there's those script books they've released for all four seasons. Just got I, those, and I put them in my Christmas list. And I, I mentioned it to Kirsten. He's like, oh, yeah, and that, that would be something mate, I would appreciate. And she's like, oh, well, which is your favorite? Which season? I was like, you can't ask me that. Like, that's impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could t- like, I generally just flip-flop between It'd which It'd be one or three, season. I think, for me. Well, like, uh, even then, because, like, yeah. three's amazing, but then I always go back to two, and I'm like, two. I love two because yeah. that's, like, the most, like... Uh, they're, like, their most malignant sort of representation. Like, the scene when they're around the TV and the guy's whistleblowing... And they're all just making comments. I'm like, they are so comically evil at this point. Like, I l- <laughs> so like season two is amazing yeah. for that as well. The finale of season two season, alone is one of the great TV is. episodes yeah. of all time. Like, and then season four is so masterful. You know what I mean? It's just impossible. Yeah. It's impossible to decide. No, yeah. we've definitely been blessed. One of the best shows yeah. of all time, I will say. I would, yeah, I definitely put it up there. Would you? You got to answer this question. We did bring it up last week, Let's but in your opinion, is there a room for season five? There is room, but I'm glad they didn't. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I think I think I think they could have stretched it out. I think I think there was an interesting aspect to have. I always believed that they would kill Logan um at the end of a season and then have a full season to like finish it off, which is more or less what they did, like by mm. killing him at the start of the final season. Um but I do think that you probably could have if you really wanted to elongate the success of it. And I know that the actors all said that they were they, they just wanted it to they go were on forever. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it. it's Shakespearean at the end of the day, so you know you've got that like the melodrama can continue. There's more things that can happen. But I do think that they would have worried of of getting tired and you know, like how much can I see <laughs> Kendall mm. suffer? <laughs> <laughs> Even on the ending, not not to delve into too much detail, do you not think that there is at least like some form of epilogue that could occur? That's really interesting, hey, like I think I think I, I personally just love that they they leave it off and we never we never quite know like mm. what specifically happens to them. I think there's enough nuance in what we've seen so far. Um, and we know this characters well enough so far to know what their lives will look like. We know that Tom will continue to be a complete suck up and he will be just like the the perfect corporate slave and to absorb mm. heat and everything bad, but he will survive. We know that um we know that Shiv is gonna continue to sort of live this like backstabbing but mm. also like grasping onto irrelevancy as well and all that sort of thing. And we know that Roman's just gonna find some new adventure to be interested in. Like, he didn't never really care to begin with, and he's probably going to find something yeah. else that'll keep him entertained. I, I think that's a big part of why I think... And, like, this, the the general response, I think, was overwhelmingly positive, but I think if you were to find a more divisive take, or people didn't really like it, I think it's because it did sort of end on this note of we've almost come full circle in the sense that it doesn't feel like anyone's really changed. And it took a while for me to really appreciate that that was the message of the show is mm. that these characters are incapable of change because of their background and the way they grew up in the the um the world they've been sort of pushed into. Yeah. And by if anything their father, the, the, really. the bubble burst on them and that was mm. their their protective layer was always Logan. Yeah. Um and that's what kept them feeling seemingly invincible and when that happened that deteriorated very fast, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, and I think there's something interesting to be said that they spent the last year of their father's life essentially squabbling and ruining their relationship with him and mm. now they have to reckon with that and the fact that they've lost their siblings as well. Like, I think a lot of those relationships are unrepairable. Mm. Um, so, yeah. It's sad. What's <laughs> the next big thing? <laughs> What's the next big show, exactly? The Bear? 
Maybe. Okay. I think the bear's so up there. Yeah. I'm going to interject with the bear, yeah. right? So okay. I've, I've been watching the bear and really oh, enjoying nice. it. Yeah. Um, it is the exact same, almost beat for beat show as Heels. I don't know if you've seen that, Stan. It's on, it's on Stan. And it's about, I've talked about it on the show. It's about mm. like two brothers running a, uh, like a professional wrestling company after their dad kills himself. Wow. <laughs> and it almost has the beat for beat premise. And it's like this falling apart business. Yep. That they're trying to stoke along. It's got that real southern roots. And I'm like, I'm up to like episode five of The Bear. And I'm like, this is really good. But I feel like I just watched this version of this yep. show. Because it's it's obviously a brotherly relationship that's getting torn apart while they're trying to save their business, their family business. Mm-hmm. Which is the same relationship between, was it Kami and, and Richard yep. on um, oh. The Bear? So, Which yeah. is great, like, yeah. and theirs, and theirs is set in Boston, while this is set in like deep South wrestling. Yeah. But They're it's Chicago, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've really, I've enjoyed the the beats of the Bear, but I don't know. It's just not got the same sort of. There's something about that first season of Succession. It takes about six episodes, and then suddenly you're just like glued, and yeah. like you're you're like drugged up on the show. Yeah, it's it's epic. It, it's epic like television like at the end of the day. Like I think it was actually the show that was chosen to replace Game of Thrones as time slot in America um for HBO which was obviously like a massive leap mm. of faith for them. Um so I think we're just waiting for the next HBO big epic uh, probably. Yeah. Have you caught the bear, Jack? No, I have not, but I really is that Disney Plus? Yes, it is, yeah. Okay, well that's a big part of the reason why I haven't seen it yet, yeah. but yeah. maybe down the line. <laughs> yeah. They should it's it's quite easy to watch. It's short episodes and yeah. it's really found its groove in se- like season 1 is is very good um and it probably relies on like a really strong finish to season 1, so I definitely like see how you feel after the end finish because it does have one of the great like endings to a show like final episodes and then season two mm. i think finds its groove even more and they bring in some like bob odenkirk and oh um, i didn't yeah mm, i didn't use and, it, yeah. Um, jamie lee curtis and a lot of like supporting actors to really like beef out the cast um but yeah it's it's go- it's going from show to show i can see it sort of becoming um one of the big shows on television next couple yeah. of years cool yeah. what else have you caught Excellent. recently steven me um well I'm just going through your letterbox now. You've been, you've been, uh, you've been copying us, mate. Watching a lot of Charlie Chaplin. I have, I have. Well, yeah, you definitely ins- <laughs> like. So I, I was always more of like a Harold Lloyd guy. Yes. So I loved Harold Lloyd's films, and sort of out of spite for the fact that Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin got all the credit, I sort of was like, well, Harold Lloyd's actually slightly better. And that was sort of my that was my pretentious take, and I was like, oh, I should probably actually sit down and watch Charlie Chaplin's stuff. Um, so no, I, I really enjoyed watching three. Like probably the standouts for me. Are two of the ones that you didn't actually see, Jake. I know. Uh, this is it, hilarious. So I'm keen for you to watch them, which is um, The Gold Rush, um, mm. which is an insane film. I mean, the scale of it's crazy for 1925. And a film called The Circus, which I think is like one of his like most thematically strong films. Um, but probably a film that I really wanted to talk about with you guys is um, one called Corpus Christi, which came mm. out in 2019. And i I got to be honest, I hadn't heard of this film until very recently um okay and it really sounded interesting to me and so i I sorted out i bought the blu-ray which is another just impossible thing to find had to pay like 50 bucks for it to like ship it in like it was crazy just could not find a copy um but basically it's about this um 20 year old juvenile delinquent who's sent to work in a sawmill um to sort of uh repent and to re-acclimatize himself to life but um in in juvie he sort of found a liking for being a priest and but he he's been told you can never be a priest you're a criminal that sort of thing and so he essentially bails out on working in the sawmill because that seems crap and 
uh, pretends to be a priest for the local uh, church mm. and sort of takes on this role of like um, repenting for his sins through like helping other people. And um, it's a, it's a, um, it's a Croatian film, I believe. I might be butchering that. Mm. It's a Eastern European um, and <laughs> uh, Polish. Sorry, it's Polish. The Polish. And like um, it. it features one of like the great debut acting performances of all time. And everyone will know this kid's name in a few years. I guarantee you. Like this kid will be a Bond villain one day. Like <laughs> undoubtedly. Like he's like he's the next Mads Mikkelsen sort of thing. Yeah, His well. name's um, Bartol's um, Biel Bielnia. But um, he is fantastic, and the film itself is such a beautiful film about like uh, redemption and like understanding like are you what makes someone actually bad and understanding that sort of thing. What makes people actually good? Where's the blurred lines between things? And um, it's fantastic, and it has an amazing ending, which like it just cuts. It's one of those films where it cuts to black, and you're just like. What? <laughs> um, so that's my like low key recommendation. Can um, I? Can I? Can I admit something to both you boys? Of course. Because I I, re- I remember this film very vividly from probably the Oscars that I paid the most attention to and tried to tick every box in that year was the 2020 Oscars. Of course, the one with Parasite won. So I remember this film in that list. For some reason, I thought it was a documentary this entire time. Wow. I think, <laughs> I, it, I, th- I think it was based on a true story, so that um, oh, so okay. that might be why you made that. Where's well, it some... available, Jake? Because you've got the letterbox there. Well, it's, it's... I got a rental buy on YouTube and Apple. There's no streaming okay. services, so that's yeah. obviously why you went for the Blu-ray, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, that's why I went for the Blu-ray, yeah. It's very kindly rated on uh, on Letterbox got too. a nice four. Yep. Nice round four Don't star see four's No, absolutely. Definitely would recommend that to anyone that's interested in... Um, foreign cinema in general or mm. just particularly strong performances because like this guy is like he's in every scene of the film and he just yeah. powerhouses the whole thing um, and he just carries the whole film on his back which is already a really strong like directed film but mm. he's just so watchable um, and the one other thing I wanted to talk about was um, a short film called Ice Merchants have any of you guys seen or heard about this no. this was crazy I've like uh, my girlfriend found this out of nowhere it was she we, we were going through the letterbox country function and it has like the list of countries and she was oh, on 49 yes. countries and she's like i want to put it to 50 so we just like search for a country that she hadn't watched one from and yep. it's portugal and we're like all right let's just watch the highest rated portuguese film and this happened to be <laughs> it and it was a 14 minute short film we're like great um and anyway it's amazing it's a basically it's got this I'll show you there, Zeke. You can see the animation Yeah, I'm looking style. at the image of um, it. Yeah, it looks amazing. It's like an isometric like hand, hand-drawn, but like isometric. Yeah, and it's got this wonderful perspective where things will like come in and out of the frame, like past like the 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 camera. Obviously, it's an animated film. There's no camera, but like, like the 3D <laughs> but, like, movement The, the perspective is, is really interesting, mm. but it's basically about this um, father and son who who live on top of a mountain and every day they have to parachute off to deliver ice oh that, that they that they freeze at the top of their the top of their mountain and they deliver it to the town and um it's just a and it's a beautiful story um they're they're isolated they've lost the boy's mother um and it's just visually so delightful to watch and so mm-hmm. emotional like me and my girlfriend were just sitting crying at the end of this 14 minute <laughs> like film there's no dialogue in it at all it's wonderful it's driven by music and like emotion and some great sound effects um 
So yeah, I would recommend Ice Merchants to anyone that has a spare 14 minutes. Yeah, there you go. Who has a spare 14 minutes? That's how you get to to 50 (laughs) countries too. (laughs) Exactly. That's it. Exactly. That's the cheat code. (laughs) That's so cool that you can like check that function. So you mean mean, um, looking at Portugal, you mean you hadn't seen any films from Portugal? She hadn't seen any films from Portugal. Gotcha. gotcha. Is that like a Letterbox Pro thing? Like see how many countries you got? Yeah, stats thing. Yeah, so it's got like a world map and every country that you've seen a film from is like lit up and all the other countries. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty fantastic, actually. I think I'll pull that up for you. Is it, is it, is it the stats? Should I just do all-time it's at, stats? It's at the bottom of the all-time stats Oh, I know what thing. you're referring yeah. to. Yeah. That's really cool. I think I click yeah. all-time stats. It's fantastic. So if you're ever like interested in like a certain country, you can just click on it and it rank oh. the highest rated films. How many have you got, Jake? So let's see. Actually, um, oh, so countries in total. Yeah. Does it say? Uh, I can't you have to go find and that them. for some reason. I've seen 72 films from Australia, which is quite low, actually. It should be a little bit more than that. 1,258 films in the US of A. That makes sense. Holy moly, 64 from Canada. So at the top of your all-time states, Jake, Jake, you should have it Oh, there. it's up there. So I've got 52 countries. No way. <laughs> He's got 40. 49 countries. Wow. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You should go and watch this Portuguese <laughs> film. You but I've seen w- City of God. That's already Portuguese. <laughs> uh, <true. laughs> so we're going to another, we're gonna find you another country. Jake, have you caught anything That's in so the last week? That's so funny. I'll, I've, I've seen very little, unfortunately. I didn't even get to watch a film for my... 100 poster so I'm starting to slip Zeke as <laughs> shows I, wrapping up and you're I, falling off the rails I know no well look I actually did plan to skip a week and then do two in one week because spoiler everyone two of them are Bond films so I figured I might as well do those in the same week talk about both different Bond films from each sort of end of the spectrum one in the very early ones and then one of the the um, Daniel Craig ones so to speak um, so maybe this could be the, the one I was gonna watch Braveheart which I've never seen before. Wow. But uh, that might have to be for next week. Uh, in addition to the one I was going to watch next week. But no, the only two I've seen, and I'll start with um, this rewatch of Batman Returns oh. <laughs> that Stephen was actually present for. Have you, you have you seen Batman Returns before? No, I, 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 I mistook it for like the Bat Nipples movie. Right. <laughs> so I went in very much expecting that sort of film and right. got like Danny DeVito's sex pest <laughs> instead. <laughs> Yeah, so he's just always right. sunny. Yeah. No, <laughs> genuinely, you could make an argument it's the same character. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's a wild, wild film. So obviously, it's the sequel to the original 89 Batman. And I, I'd seen it before. And I'm, after this rewatch, I'm like, man, I, I'm sort of tempted to bring the star rating down because I, the aesthetics are incredible. Like, Tim Burton didn't yeah. pull any punches with the, the German expressionist sort of influences in the way the buildings of Gotham are shaped and the way everything's lit and um I mean weirdly enough there are a lot of third man isms in there <laughs> in terms of the way the scenes are lit. Yeah. But um you're right, it's just such a bizarre set of characters and, and narrative and like Batman's in it for like literally four minutes. <laughs> like he's barely in the movie. <laughs> he's so inconsequential. I've never seen a movie where the main character if he just you literally took him out I guarantee nothing changes. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Indiana Jones argument, of course, that, that became yeah. famous in the last 10 to 20 years. But even then, I don't know. I don't know. Because, like, the ending materially changes. Yeah. Like, where the arc ends up. Batman literally but... watches the f- final third act of this film, like, <laughs> voyeuristically. <laughs> he the final act. <laughs> he practically place. sat down in the cinema next to us. <laughs> Uh, it was so yeah, funny. right with the Indiana because the Raiders thing. If he doesn't, if he's not there, they still open. They the still open it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their faces There's up. that whole thing that's yeah. come out, but um, 
But I think this was almost like more egregious because not only does he really have nothing to do with the plot, every time he tries to get involved, he tries to save someone or like beat someone up, he just loses. <laughs> yeah, he literally loses. <laughs> he gets beat up or his, his car gets hacked, he gets framed for murder. And like none of these things really get resolved. Or the movie just ends and all the villains just sort of kill each other. <laughs> yeah. It's so bizarre, but yeah, it's... um. Weirdly kinky, weirdly paced. I've never wanted to watch those films. Like, have you never ever... seen them? No, not even the Nicholson one. Nah, no, nah. I've only ever seen post Nolan, really, and then oh, occasionally okay. I went through a little phase where I watched some of the animated ones, where I watched a few of them. Oh, like, the... like Under the Red Hood and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Where I was like, oh, it's the cool and Killing Joke and like stuff like that. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, it's edgy. Yeah, but. no, I um, that was so, I, I legitimately <laughs> lived through that whole like, oh my god, the Killing Joke scene adapted to like an animated feature, yep. and the oh god, it's really bad. Yeah, I remember living through that whole thing. That was it was quite funny. Yeah, <laughs> um, made me chuckle because <laughs> then you watch the Invincible, so Invincible now, and you're like, yeah. there's just not pulling. I haven't seen yeah. episode four yet. I'm gonna go home and watch that. I've oh, been nice. waiting until I'm waiting until the mid season breaks done. I can't like I, can I hate mid season yeah. breaks. <laughs> Oh, they're doing a mid-season break for yeah, it. Yeah, it's like oh, six God. months, man. What? Yeah. Oh my God. Because they get that. You know, the crazy thing is, is because they're giving the animators time to finish. Yeah, well, that's well, a good. That's a good reason. Very good reason. We don't want a, a last season of Avatar: The Last Airbender. It's been so long. Mm. Like, I mean, I guess that's because COVID, right, was the reason why. Yeah. Invincible got is that delayed. legitimately when the last season aired? Yeah, twenty nineteen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I guess six month break isn't that bad then, <laughs> compared to that. Yeah, it's just a mid season break, which always sucks. But. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> oh, it's, it's going to end on like a cliffhanger for and sure, you're, and you're going to sit there and be like, "Oh my god, like here we go again." Yeah, oh, fair enough. Well, uh, maybe I'll wait until all of that mess is over to, to jump into that show. But the only other film I watched this week, and I know Steven's seen it. I don't know if you've seen it yet, Zeke. Past Lives. No, I haven't. Now, I I the only reason I jumped on it is because it's like seven dollars to rent on YouTube. I was like, that's pretty quick. For it to kind of get in that one-digit rental market there. So mm. I jumped on it. And it was definitely different from what I expected. Because I kind of expected the before sunset sort of... Uh, here's like a night where they're together. And, and the film sort of... It takes place over a much larger period of time yeah. um, than I was expecting. But I, I quite enjoyed it. It sort of has that quiet, patient, after-sun-esque sort of mm. aesthetic to it. Where it's very quiet and... You know, you're sort of analyzing the relationship between, well, particularly these two characters. There are more relationships to analyze throughout the film, but I I love a lot of what Ceylon Sun is doing. With I mean, the opening shot I thought was actually kind of genius. This idea of taking this sort of comedic trope we're all used to, where a couple sort of sit in a diner and point to other couples and who are they? What what's their deal? What's going on? And introducing us to our protagonist through that lens, and then having that even later juxtaposed when they're at the airport being questioned like why are you here and we oh, we almost get the answers to those questions which all sort of for me it kind of amounted to a story about the mystique of the what ifs of relationships mm. and especially the ones that we lose over time and, and the ones that never quite end up the way we imagine they do and it sort of breaks that mystique down in a really interesting way where because the character they they always talk about what past lives means within the context of this and and the idea of like our future selves uh, have other stories to tell or that we've we bump into each other because we've had histories in our past lives together and this very ethereal ethereal way of thinking 
And yet the story they're telling in this film is very grounded and very sort of real and kind of messy as well. The relationships are a little messy. And it, it almost feels like, is that like their justification for the sadness in their lives? This is, yeah, I just thought there was a lot of interesting stuff going on in the film. What, what, what was your take, Stephen? Yeah, um, I, I saw this in cinema um, at the Windsor. Um, and oh, yeah? Yeah, I had it. Had like pretty much the whole cinema to myself, and it was just one of those films oh. where it's really good that you just have the whole cinema to yourself, mm. and you just can like really lock in. And um, I I really enjoyed this film. I, I thought it was like a really strong look at like like you said like past relationships mm. and and just the way in which we reflect on them as well, um, and the longing that you can feel for for people that you used to know mm. and what could have been, and um, and but particularly particularly the regret that you feel as well around mm. around certain ways things end um and how and how they could have been um but i i think what impressed me the most was the fact that it's a directorial debut which yeah. is pretty crazy very I mean, like a very strong like like just vision to be honest like it's, it's a classic phrase in this podcast directorial yeah. debut directorial yeah. debut yeah <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i mean it, it's, it's kind of becoming like we, we're seeing a lot of directors these days come out really firing um probably well, that probably, was another reason for the after shunts after sun shout out yeah the charlotte wells um directorial debut yeah directorial debut yeah it, it, it's one of those films where it feels so personal that like you have to imagine that mm. it's 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 connected to some something in celine song's um life yeah um prior to that but um yeah, for me, the things that stood out, yeah, were the performances and the like, the quietness of the performances. Like, yeah, there's a lot, it's just one a of those lot ones of pauses a, and gaps in conversations. A lot behind the eyes. There's a lot in the way that they physically interact with one another. There's a great scene where near towards the end of the film, where he's waiting for the taxi, and yeah. they're like hovering over each other, mm. and like, are they going to kiss? Are they not going to kiss? And it's just this this beautiful physicality to the performances and the and the directorial patience just to linger on a shot like that and, and understand the power of like how long to hold that yeah and um i just i just thought that yeah artistically it was it was it was very strong even if um even if this the film itself doesn't like have something grand to tell you with its plot sure. it's not super complicated yeah. or doesn't particularly answer any of the questions that it poses mm, um that's a good point yeah. but it but it just presents them as this is just something in life that we that we deal with and, and something relatable something yeah. relatable and and how do we each individually process that I do. I did love, um, especially when they're sort of walking through New York, and you have like there's the Statue of Liberty, and I think they're like near, I guess, the Brooklyn Bridge, Bridge, maybe the Hudson River, and all of that. Where this the shots themselves are so wide, we're getting like this huge landscape shot of essentially New York, and they're you know the the tiny little figures in the shot as they're walking through, and I just I like the idea of the location sort of encroaching over them, especially because it is such an important part of the story. Is where they're based yep. and where they're living, where they're living respectively yeah. and even just the the sound like the just the quiet atmosphere of i think it's either korea or new york that they're um respectively in and i just i love the sound design there and then the music as well i sort of noticed it sort of has that um really nice sort of um i don't want to use the word ethereal again but <laughs> <laughs> um sort of a dreamy sort of classic music vibe and transcendental transcendental ah, thank tra- you Zeke See, this is the vocab man over here <laughs> but then that slowly sort of shifts into the more somber guitar strings of later in life and there's a lot of little things in there that like like you said it feels very personal it's a very personal film so I'm curious where she goes from here I think she's doing another A24 film I think she is yeah um, I f- yeah I feel like we have a name for that but I 
I'm kinda, we do. It's, I'm kind of blanking. It's called uh, Materialists. Oh, that's right. I didn't know that. Excellent. wonder what that's about. <laughs> Set against the vibrant backdrop of New York, a city that never sleeps, is known for its diverse and dynamic relationships. Materialist provides us a unique glimpse into the lives of New York City's elite. Mm. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> it's there the succession. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is. Oh, but Zeke, what, what have you been watching lately? Absolutely nothing. Other oh, than the excellent. bear. Like, to be honest, the, I watched the bear, watched episode three of Invincible, enjoyed that. But the bear, the bear has been the only... Uh, new thing I've covered in the mm. last week because it's been a really busy, you know, it's busy week. Sure, Wrapping yeah. up with reports. Uh, obviously, the last couple of days been doing mm. a doing some film work. So very nice. Well, yeah. that's a, maybe a good way to transition into this is this is exciting. All three of us have career updates, which is very very cool. Well, let, let's start with that, Zeke. So, what were you filming over this past weekend? I was just filming a couple of uh, concerts. For um, the Academy of Dance and Elegance mm. up in Kalamunda, so back to Kalamunda. There you um, go. <laughs> in terms of you can never escape. Yeah, no, you know, I actually always really liked filming live production stuff like that because, mm. you know, the best part is when you've got like you know your A cam and I've got a really nice like perfect varifocal sort of broadcast camera sitting mm. up there, so it's just a set and forget for that one which just allows you to just get all that really nice gimbal footage and you just, mm. it's really nice when you pull off a shot like in coordination with the live performance, you know, like that was a really good shot. I'm going to use that later. And it's like the yeah, real satisfaction yeah. you get from like, it's kind of like a wedding, I guess with the unpredictability of it. It's more rewarding yeah. when you capture that moment. Absolutely. Because you didn't really orchestrate it necessarily. You just yeah. caught it. It's like that moment. Cause it was frozen and frozen too. Right. And it's like really nice. It was there. Yeah, well, I was not expecting that. Yeah. Um, and it's that moment when like the bad. I have never watched Frozen, so there's my um, blacklist that I probably should watch. <laughs> Music's actually really good in Frozen. Never thought it was. I'm a pro '90s Disney music. I reckon. Much yeah. like the camera that you left at the back, you pro let it. Collins. You let it go. Yeah. That's it. Um, but there's that really good moment where <laughs> he like the bad guy's about to stab Anna or whatever, and I like got it perfectly, and I was like. Yes, like it was like that moment where it's like, yeah, I got that really good, like perfect moment, right depth of field, everything was working. Really I love well. the idea of like, there's like a pause in the play, and everyone stops, and you just hear Zeke in the corner be like, yes. <laughs> I'm on board, I'm very expressive when I'm doing it, so I'm oh, just that's there, like, funny. Like, <laughs> it's popping, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that reminded me of one time, this is years and years ago, I filmed um, like a Chopper Reed performance. I think it was in Coburn, actually. I don't think it was the real. Could have been the real Chopper Reed. I think it actually... No, it wouldn't Well, like the new the uh, new guy playing him. Yeah, yeah the, the comedian. It wasn't actually the guy, the murderer Chopper Reed. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't and mean I, the comedian that... Yeah, like, he's like portraying him now. Um, this was like maybe 2019 when I did this. And I remember like, yeah, kind of at the front going back and forth between the audience and like getting good angles on him. And he thought for a minute that I was just an audience member leaving. So he started making jokes about me, being like, "Oh, like he doesn't, he he didn't like that joke. He's leaving." And then I turn around with the camera, and he's like, "Oh shit, he's filming me." Ah, oh, and then he starts making jokes about me trying to get trying to get an angle on this fat, you know, then just going on about it. It was quite funny. Um, he was he was a funny guy, but um, nice. No, so that was that was quite fun, Zeke. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, what about you, Stephen? Hmm. Well, me. Um, well, listeners might not know this, but um, I'm currently uh, in my career. I've been. Between doing film stuff, obviously, on the side and then mm. trying to make a career in that, um, I've been an events organizer for um, a, government organize- a government organization for the last few years. Um, so, I've been really busy with that. Um, coordinated 
uh, Western Australia's um, Remembrance Day service recently. Mm. Um, working on a ball at the moment, um, which will be a big fundraising thing in Western Australia, which will be really exciting. But Excellent. I've decided to leave the corporate world behind and uh, and pursue something that's it's always been a massive passion of mine. Always wondered if I'd end up in it eventually. Um, and I've finally decided that, yeah, I will be pursuing um, a, a career as a teacher, as a media teacher and a drama teacher. Um, which I think is slightly more my calling than mm. working in the corporate space. Sure. Um, so I'm really excited. I'll be doing the course at our very own Edith Cowan University um, and collecting my second master's degree. Um, and I wonder if I now need to refer to myself as Mama in my <laughs> in my LinkedIn. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm really excited. It's a, it'll be a two-year course that I think I can accelerate to 18 months and then yeah, hopefully coming to a school near you, I uh, can be imparting some some knowledge of <laughs> to a school near you, and uh, yeah, helping oh to having to uh, impact the next generation of Western Australians. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. I feel left out now. You I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But on, on top of that, Stephen, since you last come on, you've uh, you started a new podcast. I have, I have, yes. So I have started my new podcast, Dramaturgically, which um, Jake has just uh, come on and been the second guest on the podcast. I'm slowly starting to oh, introduce guests. I'm, I'm only the second one. Only the second one. Yeah, I, I've I've been really really careful to sort of build the the structure of the show first before I bring people on because I didn't want to just be throwing them into craziness that i hadn't quite figured out yet and um it's starting to feel it's starting to grow starting to um really gain some listenership now and in, incre- incrementally increasing mm. and um and definitely letterbox has been a good tool for <laughs> marketing but um yeah if you um primarily my podcast looks at um international and or like independent cinema um i do tend to talk about things that come out in 2023 as well just because gotta get that listenership in but <laughs> but, but yeah that, that that is sort of that is sort of the the goal of the podcast is to explore um independent and foreign cinema that really doesn't get the light shone on it well to, to be fair though I don't, I don't think it was purely just listenership because i feel like the first was spider-verse the first one you did it was yeah the first modern one i did i yeah. feel like that was like i think you walked out of that just like so like oh my god i need to talk about this yeah uh, yeah, so uh, to be fair, I don't think it was purely a monetary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> it was artistic. It was artistically it was artistic driven. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're not a capitalist like Jake. <laughs> <laughs> well, to come off that, yeah, like you said, Stephen, I'll be on uh, your next episode. It's very exciting. We're talking about Bad Genius. Bad Genius. It's a long overdue. Though. 2017 Thai film. There you go. Excellent. Great. Very exciting. Jack, do you have any career stuff? I do. So in the last week, it's funny that we're all mentioning schools to a, to a certain capacity because I finally went back to a school that I worked at for several years in Padbury uh, to do some VR 360 recording, which is very mm. exciting. So we started at Apple Cross Senior High School uh, and did some filming in one of the classrooms. And the idea is that we're going to put the video on a headset. Well, we've already done it. I did it in like my 48-hour turnaround was... Uh, impressed quite a few people so i'm very happy about that um no but the idea is that a student maybe in year six is about to transition to high school can put the headset on and it sort of gives them a bit of a visual and audio uh idea or experience of what that's going to look and sound like and to prepare them for the differences and the not so differences of high school from primary school and i think it's the, it's the little things as well like you know coming in 
What, what what are you both snickering I'm about? No, I'm immediately like, well, that's a really good idea. I'm going to bring that to my school. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I thought. Well, you better hire me. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that's such a good idea because we have a year seven Did transition. I just like social network myself? <laughs> that was, that was like, no, it was a perfect pitch. I'm just sitting there like, wow. But it is that, that's those sort of things, like the brass love, like mm. the, the executives of schools, they just love that stuff because they're like, oh, that's so futuristic. <laughs> Whereas like I, I, I personally, as a year six, couldn't imagine putting a headset on and I'm like, oh, this is what year seven looks like. I've had a joke before to Jake that like, the, like a bully just comes up and <laughs> steals your lunch money. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, this is what year seven what looks high like. High Oh God! <laughs> well, I, I, There's so many jokes. I'm a teacher. I can't <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh God! Well, I will clarify. So this initial sort of test, yeah, it's being pitched to the higher up. So I think, I think the target demographic for the moment is like year six students with either anxiety or autism or you know many of these sort of uh, neurodivergencies, and that maybe from there it expands to maybe just you know a neurotypical sixth grader. Just to, just to sort of ease them into that, that process. No, I think so, it's such a fantastic yeah, idea. But we can do those uh, the more intense versions like you suggest, Stephen. So, <laughs> so you, the, more, the more realistic. <laughs> the more realistic um, version. Do you just shoot it in one space? So you just like pick one... So we did two angles. We did okay. one at the front as the kids were all lining up and the teacher comes in. All right, everyone, come on in. And they all sort of walk in. And then we did the second angle right in the center of the classroom and we recorded several sections of that and and you know what it looks like when all the kids are taking their laptops out and then what it looks like when they're working together on a project and things like that so so how did you get all the kids to be like well behaved is that like uh the the school just picked the best dance students they had and like 20 of them hoped, it, it was like 30 it was a huge class yeah i'm like genuinely well, interested well, because... I, well i think i think part <laughs> of it so they, got, they did get a, a quite a bit of prep early and i think there was that excitement because the 360 camera looks really bizarre it looks like something out of star Wars. and no, yeah. none of the kids touched it no, none of them touched it they were very well behaved <laughs> like bemused right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, Zeke's is like baffled they didn't destroy all my None of equipment them stuck a rude finger up in the background or like. <laughs> would you not yeah, exactly. no the closest we got there were quite a few students sort of like snickering and waving really quickly at the camera which obviously isn't good for the experience because it, it, it's, a little, it's a little too but there's a kid saying hi to the kid that's getting put in yeah I, I think they did like that creepy doll face half the time <laughs> And I was like, I don't think that's going to work very well. It's going to make me more anxious. I know. So like, we got a little bit of that, but the kids were generally very well behaved. Um, and yeah, we, we workshopped it on Friday. So I sort of showed the team what the process of setting up a camera and the post-production side will look at. And no, a lot of lot of very um, infused people on the project. So Excellent. It was very exciting because I'm so... I mean, it's not even that different from what I usually do with VR, which is more... Um, beaches and parks and things that are more just relaxative for um, like hospital use and palliative care and so it's not that much different in, in the sense I'm not putting the camera on a roller coaster for yeah. example but it's, it, it's just exciting to see like the use of 360 become like find more and more avenues to to, mm. to be used really like outside I remember, of video games yeah exactly yeah. well we did um at, at Screen Academy we did a we did a project where we I got to direct a 360 video oh and wow it, and it was like a choose your own adventure style thing mm. where like you could walk up to different characters and like basically have a thing and um click on them and interact with them and it was like a little story that only had like 12 options it was like super limited sure. but um it was really fun just to find different ways to apply it 
Yeah. Ah, that's very interesting. Definitely. Uh, we talking more about progressive that. technology. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, I guess it's time for us to move. Spe- speaking of progressive, let's jump <laughs> what, 350 years back. <laughs> 250 years back. Let's do it. Uh, in the past. Jake, what are we watching? This week in the show, boys, we're watching Napoleon. You think you're so good because you have boats. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, I've got so much to talk about. Oh, with this here button. we go. Here we go. What's that? Huh? Help! Help! Stop! Hey, stop! No one's ever gonna find me out here. <laughs> oh, when did dogs start migrating? Hey! I'm talking to you. Oh, I didn't see you. My name's Muffin. I mean, Napoleon. I'm Birdo. Birdo Lucci. What are you doing up? Oh! What are you doing up here? I'm trying to get down. You gotta help me. I need to warn you. The storm is near. Napoleon is coming. Personal look at French military leader's origin and swift, ruthless climb to emperor, viewed through the prism of Napoleon's addictive, volatile relationship with his wife and one true love, Josephine. Is it really, though? Yes. It kind of is. Mm. I mean, like, (laughs) straight off the bat, I think that's very clearly what the film is and not what the film we wanted it to be. (laughs) Yeah. um, (laughs) Which is the 1995 dog film Napoleon? That's oh, what we, that's, that's what we wanted it to be. About. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, it's, it just sounds like an Australian film from the clip you played. There you go. But I actually also meant Ridley Scott's film. Yes, but hot take. I will let you boys get started because you were both much more Napoleon historian connoisseurs than I am. By connoisseurs, I've watched addictively the oversimplified Napoleonic Wars videos, <laughs> which, to be honest, actually puts you in a really good place to watch this film, because then all of the battles come up, you're like, oh, I know who wins this, or I know why this goes horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's that channel is, like, the best way of learning history, I think, where it's, like, does the, the whole visual aspect and the, the humour and all that, but... I think Stephen might get the title of a Napoleon nerd when he's talking sure. about the the letters and um, all that because that didn't quite cover that. Yeah, yeah no. To, to out myself here, yeah, I definitely am. Like, I think the three things I love most in life are movies, sport, and Napoleon. As I always say, like my holy trinity. <laughs> so th- this was obviously a really. I was quite excited for this film. Obviously, um, as the material started to come out, I started to go, "Oh no!" A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> to oh, <yeah>. be honest <laughs> um, but I was still excited um, to be honest Loki I'm a bit more excited for the Spielberg TV series that's mm. coming up um, and that, so that's based on the Kubrick unfinished script yeah. is that what yeah the Kubrick scripts? unproduced scripts yeah. Cool. yeah which will be I think that that's probably the more exciting Napoleon project coming up spoiler 
I don't think many of us liked the film in the room. I'm not sure, actually. I haven't spoken to you, but I'm getting that vibe. Um, I was bored. Yeah. Just, like, mm. bluntly. I was, like, genuinely bored. And, I, I mean, I'd just come off a day of work. Is a night screening, but I had two people in my cinema legitimately fall asleep, and one of them was snoring. So that was <laughs> like to the point where he, it was an elderly man, and his I assume wife had to like nudge and wake him up. Oh, like, yeah. He snored loudly. Um, but I, that was my first takeaway. Like there are things I liked about the film, mm. but. At its core, like you said, uh, perhaps because it's such a massive... Although technically it's only about 15 or 16 years, the passage of time over the, the film, that there's so much stuff that needs to be covered in that 15 or 16 years yeah. that because of the limit, whether the, the two-hour cut, and I don't even think a four-hour cut, you'd be able to mm. get everything. But because of the story, I think Scott wants to try and tell it actually takes away from all the things that maybe people would be really compelled and interested in. And, and then like you said, Jake, where it's mm-hmm. like, you're even asking the the driving point. It's like, this film is really trying to explore that relationship between Napoleon and Josephine, but does it even do that <laughs> super intricately mm-hmm. and well? Yeah, no, definitely. That That's, that's something that like, um, the history nerd comes out to me a little bit there because the, I didn't have an issue with the fact that they centered the Napoleon and Josephine relationship as like the central story of of the of the way of telling Napoleon's mm. life because it is actually an interesting way to interpret his life as essentially being a simp. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but to but to to be honest, there's actually there's actually a lot to unpack there. But the thing that they didn't really do that well at all, to be honest, was um, give either of their characters a sense of what what they're doing all this for mm. um it's all it's all sort of depicted in like a pseudo documentary format where we're just watching characters do what they're doing for who knows what reason like why do we th- why does napoleon care about france why does napoleon want to do this why does he want to fight britain like it, none of it, it it's mm. depicted in a way of like a factual statement so like oh it felt very wikipedia yeah it felt like the cliff notes sort of, of yeah. napoleon's life and and when you do that, you, th- there's so much to explore in that relationship with Josephine because one, for one fact that they didn't show is that she was an older woman than him and she had come mm. from a divorce, obviously. Um, and what, there was a lot of stuff there with manipulation going on. She was sort of underpinning his power in France. Um, she was a ce- pseudo-celebrity in and of herself. And there's a lot to explore there that you could if you give a perspective of what happens when Napoleon's not around for her, but we just don't see that. We just see them interact together. Um, to be honest, I found... Unless what, she's cheating on him. Unless she's cheating on him, then... And then, then, you, and then that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To be honest, that's all you really ever see, which is very historically accurate. But um, <laughs> the to be honest, I just found like a lot of the performances to be incredibly flat as well. I found Joaquin to be mm. lifeless as hell. Like nothing about what he was doing to me was exciting or characterizing Napoleon in any way. And I think that's because the whole first act falls so flat. Like there's... N- like for me, the film did pick up in certain points, but it was more in the middle section. Mm. Um, but the start of the film, I mean, like straight off the bat, Napoleon wasn't there when Marie Antoinette was beheaded. But whatever, let's well, ignore that, that yeah. for the symbolism yeah. of what it's trying to show. But you just introduced him as a character who's already a high-ranking military leader. Um, mm. He wins this battle that you don't really have any context for, um, which no, you sort his, of thrown run into it. 
Yeah, I'm not particularly always a fan of, like, showing everyone's life from, like, being a child and then, like, going all the way up. But if you are trying to tackle his entire life, there's a lot of context missed there. And there's a lot of, like, understanding of, well, of who he is. I would actually... Uh, and I'll echo that because a big part of this f- film, or at least the character construction of Napoleon in this particular depiction, mm. is this sort of Oedipus relationship with his mother. Mm. And it's underpinned in that first part, and then it transitions into his relationship with Josephine. Even Josephine has lines where she's referencing being like his mother mm. in the film. Mm. And it's interesting because that's where does that come from? That origin of that perspective, why he likes his mum so much. And his mum appears in the film, but in this almost this like distant sort of still has that power, but it doesn't really invoke anything like I said it's lifeless we don't really so know where it comes from it, she comes in to be like your you know your swimmers are totally fine because of that 18 year old and then she just like disappears again like we don't see her die in the context of the <laughs> yeah. film she's like there for these little segments mm. but not in the same way where it's like in the opening aspect where Napoleon's pulling a cannonball out of a, a corpse a of a horse and to send that to mother. It's like, okay, well, this guy clearly has a weird relationship with his mum, yeah. but we don't, exp- it doesn't get explored when mm. she shows up. I'm, I'm sitting there going like, okay, we're going to start to see some weird sort of mother power dynamics between the mum, his mum and, and Josephine. But, doesn't get explored. Mm. I think. I think for sure some of that is on the cutting room floor in the four-hour version. I think. Right. That, I think that that's the most obvious place where there will be extensions. Mm. Um, the start of the film, to be honest, I think that there's a lot there that they could have, that they've probably clipped out for the sake of, of interest. People. People. Pro- get to that first battle as quick as possible. Yeah, yeah get that and... first battle. Get to him yeah. rising to emperor yeah. as quickly as possible. But like, to be honest, there's so many sections of his film of his life where, the, for my opinion, the best Napoleon film to date is the Waterloo film and that just Mm. focuses on Waterloo because that is in and of itself an incredible uh, part of his life and point of his life where Josephine has died and you know he's losing the battle and what's he fighting for anymore and there's a lot characteristically to explore there it's a little like the Steve Jobs film where I mean specifically the one that that jumps to those three time periods where it's like by focusing on these microcosmic moments in his life you're able to showcase the wider character at play and how they need to show everything exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and as compared to the other jobs film where it <laughs> is just that linear beat one beat, beat two beat yeah. three beat four and this is kind of what this napoleon film kind of falls into that it kind of simultaneously is doing and showing way too much and also not showing not enough. enough at all yeah. which is why i imagine you're most excited for a mini series version of this story yeah, for sure. I think if, if if you want to take that approach, if you want to take the approach of we're going to play this thing out from start to the end of his life, right? Mm-hmm. The only way to do that is a TV series. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's so much, and there's so much nuance in the character of Napoleon. Like, rather than just portraying him as a like a brat or like like, a, to be honest, like I found it like borderline like racially like loaded against the French. To be honest, I feel like, like it must have been. <laughs> I think I think one of the big things, and Lucinda brought this up, and I actually agree with her. I was like, at first, she was like, "Why don't they have French accents?" And I went, "Well, some films go with the root, and particularly Scott films, where he mm-hmm. goes." Everyone has American accents, despite the fact that we're in Rome, like ancient Rome. Mm. Everyone has American accents. But this film immediately goes, which I find annoying, is the fact that he has an American accent, but then is surrounded by British French people. (laughs) And I sort of, and the problem is, I said to her, and I think this comes back to the way at least Scott does it, and other more traditional films used to do it, is 
the French all have American accents. We're just assuming that we're cutting out the the mm. French aspect, mm. and but they're they're basically when they're talking to people, they have a French accent. We as the viewer are subjectively just seeing them with that accent. That doesn't mm. work when people when French it's people the same start as the speaking. Language they're actually speaking. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work when when French people start having British accents, and there are actually British depictions in the film. Yes, because then it's like. How does that It sticks work? out like a sore thumb. Because if every other country, which every other country does, when the, the Russians have Russian accents, the Polish have Polish accents, the British have British mm. accents, the French should then either have... They should just have American accents or they have to have French accents. They can't have a mix of whatever people feel like speaking mm. at, in that particular moment. That's always such like a minefield, I reckon. Hey, like, how do you deal with that? I think the best version of that ever done to anything is... Um, has, have, has anyone seen the TV show Vikings? Yes. Yeah, what they do with that show, which is when Zeke's somebody... talked about this on the show, I think. Yeah. This is incredible. Like, I genuinely think this is so genius, what they do, where basically if a character doesn't understand the language, like, contextually, of another person, they speak in that specific language. But mm. if those two people understand the language, they just speak English to each Fan- other. Ex- it's fantastic. Brought it up. Yeah, I brought it up on the show because it is. It's the perfect way of being like, that's how we separate culture in this. Because especially when we've got... Um, when they go over and they're invading like Northumbria and stuff, like we've got the Northumbrian speaking Northumbrian, and yeah. it's really cool because that's the way of separating it. And, it. and it does work. I mean, like we go back to Gladiator, it's not a problem that people point out that everyone's speaking American. <laughs> like, mm. and no one ever brings up that problem. That's because it's, there's that consistency there where it's like, we're just, that's from the get go, that's the suspension yeah. of disbelief. But this film's so inconsistent with. And then they start speaking French in random bits. Like, there's a sequences in that weird sort of embassy where politicians of countries are, where they start suddenly speaking their native tongue, and you're like, what is going on? I just want some consistency here. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to have them speak, to have them have a British accent, some of them is so strange because this film is so politically loaded. Like, I mean, like it takes it takes like the really lazy approach I feel of viewing the Napoleonic Wars as like a net good thing from Britain, um, because essentially you're looking at a country that overthrew like some hor- like a horrific reign of mm. of of monarchy leaders and kings and queens that essentially like sent the country into absolute poverty um, and they overthrew these people and and consuls took charge to to speak on the behalf of the French people and mm. eventually the smartest and most powerful came to the top in a sort of democratic slightly <laughs> interesting <laughs> ambiguous way but um, and then the British essentially said no nah, we, we don't like the idea of like the people being able to overthrow the monarchies so we're going to essentially take these out and reinstate the monarchy and like viewing mm. that as like the <laughs> like the net positive thing to do right um i just i just don't really like the portrayal of like the war itself mm. um i guess because i so i wrote this is the first thing i wrote down when i walked out of the cinema is this film more than most films begs the question like what obligation do filmmakers have when representing history and historical figures because it's you're right it's not just the portrayal of napoleon that is very divisive <laughs> but you're right it's it's like the sides that this film is clearly taking in some of these conflicts so i i just it's tricky it's picking and choosing too i mean i think the film really paints this joaquin phoenix this napoleon depiction he is from the onset basically depicted in this like you said this one a subservient aspect but he's actually just like in that opening battle he's lucky like he's lucky 
he we don't actually see any of that military acumen. Like he does, we don't. No. It doesn't talk at all about what actually how he was managed to push and expand. You know, it brushes over. Oh, we've got Italy and and Poland and and all of these other countries now under our thumb. And it's like, but how do we get here? Because the character I've seen on screen is spending all the time being. He is. He's a bumbling buffoon. (laughs) He's pushing the head of a mummy or like putting his face up against a mummy. Like there's a weird sex scenes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, and I, I found that fascinating that they really just don't, or, or even the aspect of him, how he became emperor, that whole sequence basically is just, he he runs a crown. No, when he runs away only to get the military and his brother to be like, no, go back in. We've got the military. And the funny thing is the trailer this I was sitting there when this oh, sequence yes, was unfolding. Right. The trailer makes him out like such, a, and I it's weird. It's just a cool moment. It, it's like they make in the trailer they're trying to make him out like he's this big baller emperor, <laughs> and obviously Is that's that deliberate. That yeah, there's yeah. this deliberate aspect to be like let's make him out like the biggest boss character in the trailer, only for you to come to the cinema and be completely he's underwhelmed. Like, he's running where away. Where he's like, <laughs> oh, there's, tell me there's not a snake in your bed. Like, it's like, yeah. please. I mean, I wrote some of this stuff down and some of this is very, very minute and subtle and some of this is a bit more obvious in terms of his very childlike sort of idiot, idiosyncrasies in here. Um, I love the... And th- this might have been real because, like you said, similar with the letters, there's the letter he writes to Josephine where he's basically telling her how to compliment him and her letters back to him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that a, is that a real letter? Yeah, no, so, so yeah, so yeah. Nap- Napoleon's letters were hilarious and very famous because he essentially, like, completely simped over Josephine and, like, <laughs> he, he was so terrified of, like, um, adultery and basically, right. like, being cheated on while he was gone that, like, he would consistently, like, abandon, <laughs> like, jobs and roles and yeah. come back and come rushing back to France and Paris whenever he heard of anything. Um, but, like, and, th- and that stuff is really interesting to explore because that is a side of the character of Napoleon which is not really given credence in the history books mm. um, all too much. And I always, I'm always there for, like, reinterpreting historical figures as, like, real people and that's something that you can use to humanise him. But, like you said, Zeke, like, the, the acumen of his, like... His, so, Napoleon, amongst any, like, serious historical scholar, will tell you, like, in terms of, like, actual generals, it's, like, Napoleon, massive gap, Caesar, Hannibal, Alexander the Great. Mm. Like, like mass, like he's, like, by far and away, like, the greatest, like, military mind of all time. And there's nothing there. That, no. that, like, there's, no. like, he's portrayed as lucky. He's portrayed as, like... Um, a bit cunning, but in no way, like, is he, like, masterminding plans? Like, or, like, wow, like, he put, like, <laughs> like, a few cavalry up on a hill. Like, holy shit, like, what a fucking move, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's not the, the cannons, and- man, are so funny. <laughs> it got to the point, anytime someone insulted him, I'm, like, I'm expecting a hard cut to him just cannoning this boy. <laughs> this, can- this horse. Yeah, it, it, got it, to that point. It, <laughs> it is quite interesting, because there is none of that aspect in there like the fact that he brought in like a core system that allowed him to move like move, his men move quicker there's so many mm. like th- innovations mm. he invented and public school <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like that's a crazy and thing. even like the emperor aspect like they play that like scene out where he's just basically just kind of bumbles in and yeah he gets that powerful moment where he puts the crown on his own mm. head and stuff but then like you said he doesn't talk about like church reforms or the or the fact that like these actual political decisions or there isn't anyone in the room that is like echoing the fact that how did someone basically coming from nothing 
get a whole country to be like, yeah, he should lead us in a mm. monarchical fashion. There was none of that, uh, like none of that public perception until, well, basically he comes back to France after his like first exile stint, where we get a little glimpse of the where France is like, no, nah, we want him back. Like that, we get that he's, military he's like, sequence. Hey guys, he's... and they're all like, we immediately forgive you. No, no, but, it, no, but, <laughs> but this this is the thing about that. So th- th- I was really excited for that moment because that is like a massive moment, not in just Napoleon's life, but in like history, mm. because that. Basically, what he was exiled. Wasn't what he? factually happened was he yeah. was exiled, and then he came. He came back, obviously, because he wasn't under that much guard on Elba on his first island. And when he returned, he was met by his general, General Hay, and essentially they pointed the guns at him, and they all started chanting "Vive l'Empereur!" And like that actually mm. factually happened. Yeah. And he walked back into Paris and took the city of Paris without firing a single bullet because he was so beloved by his people. And the complexity of that versus like showing. A character who's just in this film is objectively just like a awful person is portrayed to have like sl- like be responsible directly for like millions of deaths and that mm. sort of thing like to have no nuance around that and is so boring that's yeah. the consensus yeah. i mean that final title card yeah. talks about some of his biggest victories but only oh french lives lost french lives lost yeah. french mm. lives lost and then, so you, the scott is very much taking an anti-napoleon yeah perception here and I, look, that's fair enough, but like you said, look at the context of the time. Monarchs were sending people to death. So, I mean, there's a there's an actual moment when the the sniper has Napoleon in his crosshairs, and there's that that monarchical gesture from Wellington where he's like, "Ah, oh, no, no, we're not. We don't do it that way. Yeah. Like, we're going to just send thousands to their deaths." And that said. is such an awkward way they edit that beat into the film as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, nah. but it is all very transparent. Yeah. It it almost like it's trying to do maybe it's trying to do too much yeah. maybe it but it feels like like you said it wanted to really almost give Napoleon tiny man syndrome. Yeah, pun intended. Like it, it, it <laughs> that's <laughs> all it wants to do. The it, forced perspective with the shortness as well was hilarious at times. Like they were trying uh, to make yeah. Joaquin so much shorter <laughs> in certain scenes. It was hilarious. That's funny. Um, I'll read that because I, I got caught off on the whole Josephine letters, but some of the other things yeah. I wrote in terms of, you know, the small man-child syndrome going on is that he only helps the little boy with the dead dad sword when he says, oh, well, you, you're the only one that can do it. And he's like, oh, I am. Right, I'm going to go there now. Um, he doesn't hold the bait when he holds his first son. He doesn't hold the head. Yeah. Well, the, I, I don't know if it's a nurse giving him that, but she very quickly grabs his head when he won't. Mm-hmm. Um, he cuts himself while shaving. There's like all these tiny little details amongst the performance to just make him out like a like an idiot, like a moron. <laughs> it's yeah. weird, isn't it? It's so weird. That it's like this is the guy that, in all seriousness, his ego is the reason that he goes to Russia and everything eventually falls apart. Mm-hmm. Like, he does become, like, a megalomaniac. But then, to yeah. be honest, you know, you put him in his position as a guy that was raised on a... Started on a poor island and then became emperor, got the love of his people, and then pushed pretty much Europe to its breaking point, mm. where no one had managed to get that far and conquer that much in Europe since, you know, Roman times. And to be honest, yeah. since then, I mean, Hitler didn't even get that far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Like... And that's sort of wild to think about. And and not even in the... And the only reason people didn't like it is because it was more disrupting the status quo of the yep. time. Yep. Right. There was no anti-Semitic sentiment like there was with Hitler. It was solely the revolutionary ideals that needed to be quashed mm. because people that ha- came from bloodlines and wealth didn't want that to... Didn't want the poor to rise up. And 
it's so interesting because they, they they touch on the ropes pier and the that yeah. sort of thing at the start and that's that's kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's very interesting that they they start with the Marie Antoinette stuff and I was like oh this is kind of interesting that they're talking about the French Revolution and sort of how it bleeds into what spurns Napoleon to power mm-hmm. but yeah they they don't give Napoleon any credit they don't talk about any of the the moments where like how does he actually win the love of his men because all we see is this kind of distant general that hands out a couple of pieces of bread <laughs> and it's so odd it's so odd because yeah. it's like this is a guy that genuinely garnered love and appreciation and rose to power out of well yeah military force eventually but he where does that start where does that come mm. from and he wasn't particularly char- he wasn't charismatic in the way that like Hitler would like manipulate people he wasn't charismatic in the way that like other leaders would like speak to crowds and like mm. rile them up like it was through action it was through commitment and it was through like a genuine like passion for um the every man and woman of the country and to portray that as like to I don't know to for the last note to be like a basically a Wikipedia doc of like <laughs> statistics of like how many people died because of what he did, um, as like the final legacy of that of this historical person. Yeah. Like I just personally like can never take that seriously at all because it's such a boring way and a non nuanced way to look at like an, a man's entire life. Um, there are absolutely things to criticize, to criticize, and I think you can go further in certain places. Mm. Um, but to for this film just had had no grey area. Well, it's, it goes back to what you were saying, Zig. Where like the trailer, it's like, oh, it's taking these moments where in the actual film, it's essentially making fun of him and it's making him look epic to get people into the cinema. Mm. It kind of feels it's like a false prophet in a sense, and and I feel like this is Ridley Scott doing his you know classic period war epic drama, and with all the aesthetics of it while also trying to be a parody about, you know, this historical figure, while also pretending to be based around the relationship with Josephine, despite the fact that neither of us have talked about Josephine in the last 30 minutes. Because <laughs> we're talking about the Wikipedia text at the end about the wartime tactics and how many people he got killed. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a confused film. I don't think it knows what it wants to say, other than it's just, I don't like Napoleon. Yeah, because yeah. I think, to be honest, Josephine's character gets uh, kind of summed up in a bow and within the first 10 minutes of her being on screen. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, you take it from a history point of view, like, Napoleon was pretty notorious for not being great with women and he wasn't actually that attractive, fair enough. But at the same time, and she was not faithful to him. But at the same time, when in the first 10 minutes there is this, oh, well, what do you think of him? Like, yeah, he's fine. He's got money and he's going to power. And then, you know, the maid being like, well, that should be enough for you. Mm. And it's like, okay, well, where do we go from here? Because her consensus going in was was just that. And then then after the first time when she's having that affair with with Hippolyte and comes back and all of her stuff's outside and she's like, oh, no, please don't get rid of me. Like, uh, it's like, okay, then where does this relationship go from here? Yeah, for sure. And I I think think it's... If, if you want to take tackle the lives of Napoleon and Josephine in equal measure, that's a really interesting way to, like I said at the start, to look at, like, their lives because they were so intertwined and they did, like, really, like, they were codependent in a lot of ways. She relied on him for, like, the public appeal and he relied on her for, like, the validation and essentially, like, that, the, the, the whole Oedipus thing with his mother as well. And essentially, 
they introduce Josephine and, and the scenes that we see her, like we said, are mostly with Napoleon and if not, mm-hmm. she's cheating on him. We don't really see what she's getting out of the relationship. Like, no. you see, like, her stuff gets put in the rain. She's like, oh, no, like, all that sort of thing. And like, I was generally surprised when she did that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's great. You yeah. sleep with the other guy. What? No, you still want to... Like, yeah. I don't understand these characters. There's no, there's no understanding of it at all. And, like, and... And it doesn't even... Because when she dies, and she dies off screen, which is fine, you can die off screen, but, like, when you, like, bill her as, like... It'll be in the Apple TV cut. Yeah, that's the thing. (laughs) And then you see... You cut to Napoleon, and you don't really even see it affect him all that much. Like, there's no... He's kind of... Why didn't no one tell me earlier? In real life, Napoleon was absolutely (laughs) broken. Like, that's the reason he lost the war. That's the reason it all fell apart. That's the reason he died a shriveled version of himself on on St. Helena. Um, and he also took a lot of time to reflect on himself and he talked to a lot of like British scholars and famous people of the time and reflected on his own life. Um, and all of that came as a reflection of losing the love of his life, which was Josephine to him. Um, and to try and like, I don't know, they try and tie it in at the end by like his mm. final words, you know, were French, uh, France, army, Josephine. Yeah. It's just like, it's so unearned because it's you haven't put unearned. the effort into making this relationship like rewarding for Napoleon at all. Like what did he actually garner out of like, an unfaithful wife who then he fobbed off so that he could have an heir. Like, I didn't see, like, <laughs> the, the friendship and kinship there is actually really important because, yes, yeah, she did, like, she was disgusted by him and, like, her personal letters to other people say that. Yeah. But there was also a lot of, like, affection for him, like, as a friend. And they try to do this thing where she's like, you're my friend. But, like, there's no Yeah, because they, 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 they essentially, you know, get that divorce. Yeah. And then... Um, very quickly after that, he's visiting her at this other place, mm. and I'm just, I'm like, wait, so they're still talking to? Her? Like, I just, the way they portray it is, they don't, it just doesn't portray yeah. it the way that you just described yeah. it there. Yeah, like that sounds far more interesting. If Does she ever turn the corner, that. like historically, like and grow to like love him, even in a platonic sense? Yeah, so that, that's the interesting debate historically is whether or not Josephine actually loved Napoleon is a massive debate scholarly because there are contra- there are contradicting um, pieces of information for that. Um, there, she definitely did love him, but I think in my personal opinion from what I've seen and read, more of like, you know, what can I get from you and also sort of in a friendship way. She never was physically attracted to him. Mm. Um, she was she was slightly older and was using him for power for sure, absolutely. Um, and I, I do get I do get the fear behind like portraying like a powerful woman in that way of like I'm just manipulating and using you because that's sort of like a dead boring trope. Mm. But that is essentially the crux of like what she was getting from the relationship. Fortunately, that's history. Yeah, you know, you gotta you <laughs> yeah, just yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. like that's and and to be honest, it, it, like you said, that title card where it's like the last words. All I'm sitting there is now knowing that there'll be a series coming out. I'm like, well, that's so much easier to get those three words and earn those three words through a series yeah. because mm. we really, like you said, we didn't earn any of those words. Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't see his love his patriotism and also <laughs> yeah. the birth of, of uh, some of the earliest forms of like proper nationalism, mm-hmm. like which came with the French revolution mm-hmm. ideologies. You know, we see nationalism now and in, in quite a negative, obviously subtext because of what happens in the 20th century. But prior to that, there was a lot of like, that was where a lot of the rises of, of these sort of systems came from is that yep. genuine love for France and hating that there were people exploiting the 98 percent um and that's kind of where that comes from we don't see that in the film we rarely see any form of of that sort of love for the army Mm -hmm. apart from 
in this film, Napoleon just sees army as the extension of his power, really, or the, something to exploit to get him further along. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we, we cut into him being um, in one of his first like military accomplishments um, that gets him sort of his rank of brigadier general. But we don't see that acumen. There's that final scene before they do Waterloo where it's like they've got all of the, the big map out with the flags and stuff, and we mm. don't see any intellect. He's basically like, we just can't make sure they get to this location. Oh, it's Waterloo, you know, what happens here? <laughs> like, that's all yeah. that, that we're trying to get right. across with that shot. And that's kind of annoying, because it's like, we don't see any of that intellect. He is not built intellectually at all. And that's weird, because this is a guy that literally comes from nothing to being the biggest person in French history, arguably ever, hmm. definitely in like that period of time, and it's like someone who's got who's quite pathetic and simps over like simps over. He's got more dimensions to him, yeah. but this film feels flattened, quite one dimensional. I was wondering for a while when I was like, is this just Joaquin Phoenix going off the cuff, being able unable to be reined in by Sir Ridley Scott, and it. I mean, mm. the two moments, because the, the, again, with the boy and the sword, that, that's a cut. That's a cut that makes it clear that that's what his motivation is. So I was like, okay, that's, that's the film informing his buffoonery and his egotism and all of that. Yeah. The other one is when he's sitting in the front and there's literal bird shit just falling next. I'm like, this is such a meme now. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think that's a good point you bring up about Joaquin, because I'm starting to get to the point where um, he's getting into, like, Ryan Reynolds' territory of, like, just playing a character. Of like mm, in his last few films, it had like feeling of the master in some points where it was oh, like yeah. just, but not nearly as nuanced or yeah. like intriguing. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not like I like the master, but he's not like the reason I love the master. Yeah. It's definitely like sure. a Philip, Philip Seymour. Hoffman, yeah, yeah. Just um, but it's interesting because it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I kind of agree with you. It's I to be honest, it was, it was such a it almost felt a bit lazy, but I, I sometimes feel that about Ridley. I've said this about Ridley Scott. I think yeah. I love some of his films, but some of his films, like the idea of shooting 11 cameras doesn't actually feel like interest to me. It almost feels <laughs> like, it kind of feels like, well, I've got the money to have 11 cameras going at one time. Might as well just mm. film everything at once and we'll move on. The fact that the film's only shot in 61 days. Yeah. If, like, that's pretty impressive. If, if you're, sh- you're shooting with 11 cameras, right? Presumably the idea is that you want to grab something like epic that has like multiple camera angles and st- different, like interesting shots. Right. And you're trying to g- grasp the scale of things. I'm presumably right. Shoot from every angle. Like the battles feel so low scale to me, like com- in comparison, like something like Lord of the Rings battles yeah. or something. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there's just, they're nothing. They're, like in the film, this is something that I had a real, real problem with. Like the film was ugly to me. Like I had this like blue washed out, look that I was just like, this is just, mm, I, I don't know. It's it something about emphasized the, the boredom, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it like really, like I said, it's this, this flat, kind of almost draining color yeah. that doesn't really create, like it doesn't give you an ick factor. It just gives you kind of like a, mm. like it's just like, okay. I'll, like, be, I'll be the one to put my hand up and say, I actually really thought visually I quite enjoyed it all. Really? That's yeah. fair. That's fair. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just throw that it's in the first there. nice thing anyone said about this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, there are moments that I, yeah. I was like here for, but to be honest, I don't like, I'm with you. I, I think that 
this almost feel it does feel like an anti-French film yeah. in a lot of ways. It feels like a very pro-British film. Like mm. this, they have like you coming s- from yeah, a British director. It's we, unsurprising. Yeah, and, and he's <laughs> never shied away from his harsh opinions on on people, Sir Ridley Scott. Yeah. Um, but I, I found quite funny the film's summed up with, and we made a joke about the boats. But that scene where he almost has a tantrum, where he's like, "You guys can't be mean because you got boats." Like. Yeah. Like, it just sort of summed up what I thought the director thought of this character, this nation. Like, it was a very anti-French uprising to this period of time film. I I saw people trying to defend it. Like, oh, boats were a pretty big deal back then, and yada yada. And I was like, yeah, but it's, it's... But they it's, a, it's about the performance, though. The reality, like he's very clearly is, doing, yeah. like his bow is afraid. I'm a loser, shtick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's During the... these moments, he's meant to be Napoleon. It, if if Napoleon had got on land on Britain, it's a well known fact he would have taken Britain. Mm-hmm. Like the only reason that he lost that war was because that the that the Russians stopped the um, the blockade that they had of all of Europe, so Britain couldn't access any food or any trade or any mm-hmm. anything off Ireland. Um, and then Russia just allowed them to use their port. And, I mean, it's a well-known mm-hmm. fact. I mean, that period of time from the, the, the 1770s all the way through to those early 1800s, Britain were just strong-arming everyone yeah. because they could, because <laughs> they had the naval power to the point yeah. where the US went, yeah, sod it, we're, we're going to become our own nation. Yeah. And that's celebrated now mm-hmm. retrospectively. Right. The Britons are the bad guys in that, whereas like in this, that somehow the French are the, the bad guys. Yeah. Um, it's like it's like that meme in Back to the Future is like I guess you guys aren't ready for this but your yeah. kids are gonna love it <laughs> because the French famously supported the American independence as well in retaliation to the British but mm. it's um yeah I just I just find it very interesting like it's exactly what you to be honest like I've been, we should have seen this coming sort of thing yeah I've been yeah. looking at a lot of media like this through the eyes of like a colonial perspective recently and like when we live in a country like Australia I think it's really important to view history through like that colonial lens mm. and when I whenever I look at the Napoleonic Wars I just see it, see it through such like a dirty lens like anti-independence like mm. fear of like losing power for the elite like and to portray that from like a an essentially like a really old British man like it probably should have seen it coming to be honest <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting, you know. And I'm going to phone it all the way back to when we watched Marie Antoinette. Yes. Um, you know, and that film, you know, what Coppola's doing with that film, she's blatantly showing the exploitation. And obviously, that I had to chuckle when the first shot of this film is her sort of in the cupboard, like waiting to get like taken. Yeah, and I laughed because I'm like, oh, we could just link the films, couldn't we? We could yeah. just have this Sophia <laughs> Coppola film. And this film, like, it's like stuff. Rogue One and the New Hope. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) that's great Um, obviously there's a a bit more stylism in in what Coppola's doing in that film but it it, kind of sums up that that's what was happening at the time and the fact that there was this monarch and it's weird because the film like you said it has this anti sort of uh, revolutionary ideologies and and the anti-French nationalism aspects and then it's almost like weird because when Louis comes back into the latter stages of the film He's this gluttonous, like, mm. depiction that's just sort of there when, like, all of the Dukes are together. Like, we need to take down Napoleon. And it's like, I don't know what Ridley Scott's trying to do there because now he's gone the other way. He's like, yeah. oh, Napoleon's like the underdog that's fighting for it. I'm like, pick a side. What do you want to do? <laughs> yeah, is he, he, is he uh, William Wallace or is he, like... Yeah, yeah. You know, is he William Wallace or is he Hitler? <laughs> like, yeah. basically, that's what you're asking. Yeah. yeah. 
it's funny that you bring up like Leo the Eighteenth because like fun fact is Orson Welles plays him in the wa- in the film Waterloo, and he's like oh, incredibly gluttonous in that as well. That's right. Um, which, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think he's got yeah, he was, yeah, but yeah. it's like interesting, isn't it? Because it was just odd. Because I I've yeah. now got to go and watch this Waterloo film because it feels like it it is such an important battle, but it it could be essentially the way to sum up everything. Like you said, the relationship yep. with Josephine the the military prowess the fact that he almost did win waterloo if it wasn't for weather like the fact that he was he and was the, in a yeah yeah in a it, position yeah well, there's this like as like a history note there's this like, there's one thing that very famously lost napoleon waterloo well there's a couple of things there's the weather there's the um the prussians arriving on time and but more historically accurate was the fact that his cavalry charged too early and they got stuck in with the circle formations mm. and um they sort of play that off as like Almost like a joke where they're like, Napoleon, what should we do? And he just like walks into his tent. <laughs> and then like his general just like, all right, I guess we'll charge now. Oh, like It's little things. It's like when they get to Russia and he like slams his hat against yes. his head. Like he's like, yeah. like chucking tantrums. And yeah. I'm just, like, I, I loved it because we had a whole thing at my cinema where the, the um, fire alarm went off, the film froze. And I literally, the people walked in with radios to the projection. We had to communicate to which part we were up to in the movie. So it knocked the time out of whack. So people came in expecting for the next film to about to start. And that was the scene when he's like smacking his hat and he's all pissed <laughs> off. And they're like, oh, we're in the wrong cinema, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Well, that, that, that just reminds me as well. Like there's the the scene, there's two particular scenes that like portray Napoleon as like incredibly lucky and like didn't really like earn his power mm. or like his status. I think that's like the commentary from Ridley mm. Scott which is like when the cannonball goes into the horse. So he could have died straight off the bat in a battle, showing that he's very lucky. He's just like any other And then soldier, does, right? proceeds to do nothing in that battle. Basically. He's doing nothing in that battle, exactly. Well, and then doesn't there's, kill then anyone. there's a, a stupid, historically inaccurate shot through the hat, which I thought was so weird. Yeah, I was like, what is this? This has to be something, surely. That's just like, that like factually obviously never happened. Like, it's incredibly stupid. Like, I'm just like, have no idea what kind of point he was trying to make there. Like, whether he was trying to tie it back to like the cannonball and the horse thing or like... Because my thing was that first battle, and I, I kind of knew going in, I was like, I, I understand he's betrayed by a buffoon and blah, 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 and all this. is like, okay. But surely this is like, oh, this is like part of his character arc. Is that this is the first battle. I'm like not a history buff at all, so I'm watching this purely what the film is presenting to me. Yeah. This is his first battle. He's freaked out. He barely survives with the horse thing. He's like, oh my God, what, he's running for his life. Like, oh, this is his character arc. He's going to become brave as the film continues on, and that, that doesn't... Yeah, he, like, he like <laughs> grows into his role. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what I assumed was happening in that scene. Yeah. yeah. But, no. Uh, <laughs> then proceeds to not change at all throughout the entire... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's weird because it, it's so funny when that battle starts because even the prelude to it, he, like, says, I have a plan to get into the fort. And it, the plan works... And then on top of that, he gets, like, the men to clean up cannons and stuff. So yeah. we, we actually, at first, it's like, oh, we're building to... This is him coming up and devising this plan. We're starting to see this military mind blown. Mm. And then the battle happens, and we're like, oh, no, he's just a... Like, he's depicted as now lucky. Like, it kept changing gears almost. It was, it was polarizing, what do we want Napoleon to be in this film? And ends up being nothing more than bored and, and childish. I think when he kind of does a pulls a godfather part three and just kind of falls off his chair and dies it's oh, like i'm like so lazy so i'm like lazy. Uh, i could not care less about this by the way. and i yeah. thought about something like amadeus yep and it's like 
how invested you get into that story and those characters and what happens to those characters yeah. compared to here was like, oh, I couldn't, I could not care less. I, I had a really, really good conversation with my girlfriend about this at the end mm. of, of the end of the day. Cause she, she's studied history and anthropology and all this sort of thing. And so oh, like the, to, the talk around like death and like, especially with these figures, like people like Napoleon where they're so powerful, same thing with Hitler and all like these great leaders, they all wanted immortality. They all wanted to figure out like, like how could they like live forever? And like, what mm. was the idea of their lives? Right. Rarely did they ever get the chance to reflect on their lives. Right. Think of all the great men of history, Alexander, Caesar, um, all these types of people. They never, they all die mm. in unexpected, really quick ways. They don't get the chance to reflect upon themselves. Yeah. Napoleon's one of the great people of history who actually spent the last like three years of his life literally like reflecting, reflecting on every single battle, writing like critical analysis of where things went wrong, understanding like his own faults as a person, like his own, uh, how he m- screwed up his marriage and like all this sort of things and like actually reflecting upon himself and like, there's so much interesting stuff you can explore with that of like someone who's trapped, like mm. physically removed from the place where he shares such an inseparable identity. I like, mean, that could be the film right there. That's is a, you start the film in that final exile yeah. with I've, him I've at his to make oldest a short age. Film like that forever. Yeah, on, on and then S, that's how but, uh, you you flash back and happens, forth to but, these yeah. times. Like, oh my god, it writes itself. Yeah. Jesus, Ridley, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instead, he just took the. The cookie cutter. But if yeah. anything, he, he. But it sums up that you're, you know, you're 100 percent right, and to kind of join the two worlds. I mean, that's what Amadeus does. Does mm. it does it? Uh, you know, yeah, after exactly. And and Amadeus is interesting because Amadeus is just a couple film in its own right. It's the relationship between mm. yeah. two composers. So it's the exact same, and yet we and it's understand. It's covering a lot of material, but it, it funnels it through a very clear narrative, which is like Salieri. He, he he's upset and angry against God for what he's done, and he's going to take it out on Mozart. Yeah, and that's the mission and the story right there. Simple, plain. Yeah. Easy. And and we follow, you know, once again, it chronolog it, it follows that history. So we get the history points. Yep. we get the turning point for Mozart when it falls apart when his father dies. You know, we we and and even the relationship developing between Salieri and and Mozart and that, and it's so great. Yeah. Because it builds perfectly, and that is the same thing. It's a man at the end of his life reflecting on on all that sort of that has happened, and it, it's exactly where you should start with this sort of film. How do, how do we get to France War, Josephine, mm. yeah. from yeah. the man sitting there for three years in his second exile? Well, mm. I mean, if, if that's not where that series, that Spielberg series starts, mate... What yeah. are you doing? Exactly. Well, no, we're just waiting <laughs> for the <laughs> Stephen Clark film. That's what we're waiting for. There you go. We want it. <laughs> Honestly, like, it's it's kind of like, like, I've always wanted to make a film called St. Helena, which is just based on, like, like he had, like, this very famous, like, relationship with, like, um the British um soldiers that, like, kept him guard. Mm. He actually became, like, like they, they kind of play into it at the end where he's talking to the guards on the ship and stuff. Yeah. But he actually became, like, best friends with all the people that guarded him, and they, like, respected him so much that they would call him, like... Um, Emperor Napoleon and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's just interesting enough in and of itself to be a short film or a film or anything. But um, to barely explore that is just so stupid. We get it's that. There, there, is a, there is a series that did um, tell Napoleon's life. Um, it's, I can't remember what it's called, but I think it's in French. And basically, it's really cool. It's on St. Helena. And it's about the children of like the government people that lived on mm. St. Helena and he was just this old random dude who lived on the island and they were like he would like tell them battle ben stories Ben Kenobi yeah basically Ben <laughs> Kenobi and like he would like like re- relay his story as Napoleon like through like um he would like tell one episode was like him telling a part of the story and then like the next episode would be the next story that he would tell the kids yeah. and that was really cool and it's just like 
Why take the cookie cutter approach to doing these biopics? I know, man? This so linear, <laughs> boring. Yeah, I it flip and flop. Everything I keep it does. Flipping and flopping with Ridley Scott. Yeah, I, I just 50 I genuinely, I don't. There aren't many films in the post two thousand world that Ridley Scott's made that I like. Like, what can we name them? What what ones would you like? Last Jewel. Last Jewel was Last great. Last Jewel was good. I liked The Martian. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I very much enjoy The Martian. I, fi- I always figure that's him. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. yeah. Probably say that's it. It's probably about it, really. I mean, don't like, like any of his alien. We thought this. No, he's new aliens. Uh, <laughs> we thought we thought this <laughs> could be a last jewel. It ended up being a house of Gucci. A good year. I will say house of Gucci is Robin way Hood. more boring than Napoleon. Really? I will even say that. Yes. Wow, that's pretty. I didn't see it. Like I literally oh, it's the worst film. I literally so made bad. a joke <laughs> in the. I think I saw it with Damien actually. I, at some random point, I just turn it on. Like, man, we've only got seven hours left, and he just died laughing. <laughs> I it, me it was so it. true. It was just, it went on forever. <laughs> they had the telethon screenings, and there was a free one for House of Gucci. And Luce and I went, and we just we got halfway through and went, "Thank God this was free," because <laughs> like, I would not have paid money to see House of Gucci. Oh, well. Was- Boys, let's. I feel really bad, Stephen, for your final episode of the Cinema Side Podcast. Be a film where we kind of just dunked on it the whole time. Yeah, that's fun. We've had a good dunky in ages. <laughs> but let's end it on a high note. Boys, do you have any highlight scenes from the film? That's a good question. Because I always do like. like There are a lot of redeeming qualities of any film. Like, I yes. think as filmmakers, we can all appreciate the heart and sweat and tears that go into making a film of any shape or size, let alone something as big as this. So, so there mm. are redeeming qualities. I mean, this is a massive scope film shot in 61 days. Like, that is genuinely impressive. Because 90% of the problems we have with this film are to do with the script. Yeah. And, yeah, the, and the, the portrayal. Yeah, of, the portrayal, yeah. But, like, the crew that worked... I mean, like I said it earlier, I think a lot of the battles are really great. I enjoy the visuals for it. The sound design was excellent. Especially some of... The, I mean, I saw it at Whitford's. They have an insane sound system there and, like... Just some of the cannon fires and the way that sort of surrounds the I thought that was all amazing. So my my highlight scene would probably be the Battle of Austerlitz, which Austerlitz, is yeah. Austerlitz, which um obviously the one the the ice they yeah. all fall through. Like yeah. I, I just I I know there's there are better ways to block it and to frame yeah. it and to all of those things, but I I was like, these are easily the best parts of the film for me. Yeah, I'm and and to echo that, probably my highlight scene are those those occasional sequences where I'm like, oh, this actually does help with the pacing. I really liked the, in the Waterloo battle, the mm. scouts scenes with the double horses and having oh, them yeah. run and check the sort of the pacing. I thought that that was a really good way if the rest of the battle didn't feel as clunky. Mm. They would be really good sort of ways of, oh, well, you know, they've got the Prussians incoming um, and we they're really good ways of doing it. Even just having the two horses and then having the the character jump onto the second horse to ensure that they're moving mm. at the quickest pace. I was like, well, there's a really good historical sort of touches. But yeah. um, other than that, maybe, maybe, uh, God, I couldn't even, I really do struggle. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I think, I think for me, probably like when the, at one point I thought, that the film was going to, like, veer into, like, borderline, like, Death of Stalin territory. Right. With, like, the Ropespierre stuff and, like, the coup d'etat and, like, just how sort of, like, incompetent and, like, uh, just really, like, gross it all is. And they're all, like, sort of, like, they're crawling and grasping to power and all that sort of, like, people are getting murdered in the Senate and stuff like that, like, Julius Caesar sort Mm. of style. Um, 
and like Napoleon's getting like chased out of like rooms and threatened to get murdered <laughs> and that was and I kind of like it was like from like a death of Stalin perspective sort of thing right. where like it's just the chaos of like uh, revolution I did sort of enjoy like that sort of like 10 to 15 minutes mm. um, yeah but apart from that it's pretty bleak <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, I think it, yeah, it goes back to I think this the style of this film does not fit the 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 type of film it is, which is you know the critique and the mocking and the go full comedy if you want. Well, to exactly, mock, just go full comedy. Exactly. Like why? Why? That's a broader conversation about why directors, specifically people like Ridley Scott, so afraid to take like a like a strong comedy approach. Yeah, like we rarely see guys like that take like a like well, like Mel Brooks approach of just like. Mm satirizing something completely i haven't like i mean the martian's probably the the most comedic i think i've ever seen Mm. really scott push because then if he he can't do like romance films because a good year is like pathetic (laughs) um and i don't know i mean like he he'd made a really you know we all really like alien it's a really good bottle sci-fi horror Mm. yeah i i don't i don't know i really don't know with I genuinely think Tony Scott was more consistent <laughs> in his life. I'm, it's my hot take. Man, I, like, I think I like... Rest in peace. I think I like Tony Scott films more consistently mm-hmm. than I like Ridley Scott films. Yeah. I, think, I think Blade Runner's a masterpiece, but it's like... Then, then I'll, yeah, for every Blade, Runner's, Blade yeah, Runner, amazing. I get a good year. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, and I just like... Whereas if I think of Tony Scott, I'm like, well... I think all of his films that I've seen have just been good films. Yeah, yeah even they may not be as iconic, but no, Top Gun's pretty iconic. But... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. like you said, Man on Fire is really Man good. Man on Fire, yeah. Mm. yeah. Even um, what's that? Days of Thunder. It's really solid. Oh, okay, it's a solid film. Nice. It's a, it's actually really strange, Jake. I just reached over to your thing and right next to each other are The Martian and Man on Fire. There you go, <laughs> Scott and Scott. <laughs> There you go, go right runs, next to each go. other. I got that copy of Man on Fire because you may notice it's a DVD, not a Blu-ray. Mm. That came, I think, with my copy of Max Payne 3, the video <laughs> game, which is so... There is a time when EB Games would just give movies away with the when you buy... EB Games, games. is giving anything away right now. Their sales yeah. are just ridiculous. This is like, like $10, 10 years ago, $10 though. $10 a game now. <laughs> Black Friday, I think, yeah. yeah. Well, I think like that's the... Like, let's not get into games. No, no, no. no. We're, we're, <laughs> no. Well, we're well past that. Um, well, Napoleon. Currently out in cinemas near you. Speaking That's of it. cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming this week? Coming to Netflix, we have Family Switch, which sees Emma Miles and Jennifer Garner in a Freaky Friday body swap scenario. That's fun, isn't that? Is uh, Emma Miles? Isn't she from Wednesday? I think that's oh, who I that is. I think she's like the friend in Wednesday, like yeah. colourful hair and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, also, talk to me, the Australian horror film. Mm. Oh, the one with the hand yeah, coming streaming. Yeah, coming nice. to Netflix. Very nice. Cool. That's already on Blu-ray. Yeah, right. I saw it the other day. I was surprised by that. It was um, is the Wacker Wacker Brothers? Or... There's a couple interesting ones like <laughs> like co- coming out recently. Like there's actually some good stuff coming out. I, I'm not sure when they're getting Australian releases, but mm. I know that like there's some controversy over like the holdovers coming out on to digital. I'm really excited to see that film. Um, oh, what? have you heard of that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Alexandra Payne. Yeah, yeah. What's yeah. the controversy? Well, so they in America they only gave it a six day cinema release, and six then it's coming days. to streaming. Yeah, and it's like massively overperformed, um, and it's only playing on like something crazy like forty screens in America. Wow, <laughs> it's insane. Um, so yeah, they've done that one really dirty. I thought um, it had to be it. two weeks, didn't it? Yeah, for the the Oscar runs yeah that's weird it'll probably have like a select like it'll probably continue to i think it's six days before streaming or something like that uh, i see i don't know it's probably continuing oh on, okay but... so 
yeah. totally it might end up with the two yeah words. it'll end up with longer yeah gotcha yeah but that sound that sounds right i so- i remember on um framed that she had like a sponsorship with the holdovers yeah and then i should it's stupid me i should have known the next like four framed uh things were going to be alexandra payne films nice there's a lot of descendants that's clever and, uh, it looks oh, sideways looks good. it looks yeah. it does look i'm good. very yeah. excited I think my favourite film of 2023 is coming out in Australia in the next couple of weeks. It absolutely is, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. It's very exciting. But uh, first, coming to Disney Plus, we have Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Everyone, everyone, let's get really excited about that. <laughs> I heard you tried going in. You were really optimistic. I did. I did, I, I did try to be very optimistic. You thought this was going to be the Logan of Indiana Jones. Yeah, so. I, I'd, I'd hope. It was just like, I, I love... I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge, um, specifically Fleabag, really. But yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's just a bit of a bit of a mess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's some redeeming things again. Like it's yeah. probably it's probably got more redeeming things than like Napoleon, for example. Uh, Ooh, I would say. I'm, gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give him the same score on Letterbox. Yeah, I'd probably give him the same for starters. Yeah, coming to Prime this week, we've got The Marsh King's Daughter, which stars Daisy Ridley as a young mother who must confront her long buried past as the child of a kidnapper. Mm. Oh, what's going on there? Also, a Christmas comedy horror called Candy Cane Lane, starring Eddie Murphy as a man who makes a wish to a mysterious, mischievous elf. I have not seen an Eddie Murphy new film in, like, decades. <laughs> when was the last Eddie... Oh, he did Dolomite. Dolomite. Yeah, it was oh, Dolomite, ago. true, actually. That was that's a great. Good point. Isn't it? There's also, like, a Beverly Hills Cop 4 coming out, right? I did see it. I think Netflix oh, really? posted a photograph. Yeah. I think they're shooting it. Yeah. Dolomite was really good. I did like Dolomite. Yeah, yeah. that was my name. Is it Do- Yeah, Dolomite's my name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was that was, was a lot of fun. That was a really fun uh, sort of black exploitation film. Black exploitation film. Yeah. Now, oh my god, that was loud. I have a little oh, pamphlet wow. here that that Stephen gave me earlier for the Eight Mountains. Of course, it has a it has a different name. The Alta Montaña. Oh, that's it. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about that film. This is an absolute. This so I caught this um, at a cinema called the Projector in Singapore. Um, mm. It was like a, a part of the Italian Film Festival over there, and um, that's a lovely theater, by the way. It absolutely oh, nice. craps on our own lovely Luna, <laughs> um, but it's a Damn. fantastic art house cinema. But anyway, I saw this film and it's absolutely brilliant. It's basically it chronicles the friendship of um, these two char- these two young boys who grow up in regional um, Italy, um, both who have. Uh, difficult relationships with their fathers and um, one comes from a place of wealth and one comes from a place of quite like brutal um, hard-working blue collar and essentially it is about the reconvening of those two friends years later um, Mm. as they attempt to build um, a house um, that they talked about when they were children on top of one of these mountains and um, it's about them reforming their friendship it's about like um, about re-evaluating friendships at like a a later point in your life and it's also mm. just about the struggles of life um when you reach your like 20s and 30s and it's absolutely brilliant some of the best cinematography you'll ever fucking see in your sorry for the f-bomb ever seen in your whole <laughs> life <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> and um and some brilliant music too so definitely check this one out in cinemas because it's one that you're going to want to see on the big screen currently yeah, the uh, jury prize winner at yep. Cannes won the jury prize won winner. four italian academy awards Yep. I would not I would not be surprised if this is um, one of the big contenders for best international yeah. picture mm-hmm. at the Oscars. Very good. Is this your favourite film of the year? My favourite film of the year, um yeah, it Saltburn was a close second if not for the last twenty minutes, which is oh. genuinely horrible. <laughs> Damn so intriguing. Hey, people hated the ending to Promising Young Woman as well, so Yeah, that's true, yeah. There you go. Maybe she's on a streak. But yeah, that allegedly comes out this week to mm-hmm. Luna. No, there's a few more coming out I'm really excited about. So Bottoms 
comes out this week as well. Nice. Sam Siegelman reunites with Rachel Sinop as two unpopular best friends. So uh, Emma being the director of course and yeah. two additional unpopular best friends start a high school fight club to meet girls and lose their virginity but soon find themselves way in over their heads um yeah love it keen to see it yeah it was a bit of a letterbox sensation that one for a it while was, it, like yeah. broke the like, top 20 on letterbox for a Did while it really Holy yeah crap. i think it was like it was one of those wow. like but then it like died down significantly. <laughs> sure, yeah. That's it's the problem. Cooled. With, yeah, 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 that's cooled. the problem with Letterbox lately is just how fast things how can climb. Things, yeah. yeah, it's like I mean the whole. I mean they that's literally spi- changed the rules around Spider Verse. Yeah, so. sp- I don't. I don't like the Spider Verse in like the top like ten for a while. There, I was like, yeah, oh, that's, that's like- insane. <laughs> Taylor Swift too. Like the, yeah. the, the uh, arena's yeah. one was like yeah. right up there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I that's that's the one thing about Letterboxd becoming so popular now is, it is. you're gonna get they, a little they, bit of that. I, I like that they're creating like separate lists now though. Like, um, has it is anyone a Talking Heads fan in the room? By the way, I've never seen Talking it. Heads. No, Talking Heads. They're a band, but that's all right. Oh, the band. oh band, right, right, yeah. right. They're 1984. Yeah. Well, they just did the Stop Making Sense, didn't they? Yeah, Stop Making Sense. Yes. Yeah, which is like the number one on the documentary. But that's what I was saying. They should is that create number one on the documentary. Yeah, yeah. Holy moly. Yeah, it's fantastic. But it's essentially like a concert film. <laughs> so I don't know if it yeah. technically, but it's directed by Jonathan Demi and everything. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it technically qualifies as a documentary in my brain. <laughs> right. Well, that was. I think there was a bit of a debate with the Last Waltz as well. I think the Last Waltz has a little more in there. Yeah. Your interviews, your talking heads. I mean, ha, there you go. Yeah. No, know. this is literally a concert film. Like <laughs> through and through. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's uh it's like that, isn't it? Also coming to cinemas, we've got Uproar, which is set in New Zealand, 1981. Sees a 17-year-old mixed race who has been a passive bystander all his life until he must stand up for himself amongst nationwide protest against racism. I like that logline, but then the trailer is also like, <laughs> it's like precious, but a guy. I saw this And trailer. he's like, <laughs> people yeah. make fun of him and he's like, yeah, but I want to be acting. And yeah. <laughs> and this, this is all like, you it's must stand up from... against racism. And it's old mate from wilder people, right? Hunt from the wilder people. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It looks cool. It looks cute. It looks cute. Yeah. It looks like they're fun. Like, um, it looks like the Springsteen film that came out a few years ago. Yeah, Blinded by Light. <laughs> Blinded by Light. Oh, yeah. It looks like this year's like Blinded by Light. <laughs> yeah, like that cute, what like... shout. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Misunderstood sort of. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good vibe. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, we've also got The Old Oak, which is a pub landlord. <gasps> what? What? <laughs> yeah, you tell, tell the right, film first. So it's he's a pub landlord who previously thrived with the mining community, now struggle to hold on to his bar. This was like one of the all-time great cinema moments for me because th- this played like the trailer before Napoleon and like, oh, yeah. it, to understand my Napoleon experience, I was in a cinema with, in Windsor with three rows and like yeah. five or six seats in the row. <laughs> so it was very tight-knit and very yeah. packed and every seat was taken and um, they were playing this and it's like the classic, this is like an old person propaganda film. Yes, yes. You know, where they make it where it's like, if we make this film, maybe one old person won't be racist anymore. <laughs> 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 and like I, I was watching this just like like oh my god this is so funny like yeah. and, and then like the old guy next to me who must have been in his 80s or something just goes to his wife and he goes oh that looks nice <laughs> and like they got him <laughs> they got him they did it yeah. <laughs> that's so funny it's so good oh we got <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good uh, that oh, was good. Oh my god! That's uh, that's. It does as, sound nice. It does sound <laughs> nice. Oh, that's almost as good as the Swiss Army Man story. The Swiss Army Man one, yeah. <laughs> what a classic! Uh, we got Journey to Bethlehem, 
which is a collection of classic Christmas melodies and modern pop songs that tell the story of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus. If the Sound of Freedom crowd don't jump on this, then I, I think there's some sort of agenda going on here. He was almost <laughs> taking the bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And finally, we got films like Godzilla Minus One. Is that different from the one you saw? I have, I'm so confused about this. So I saw Shin Godzilla, um, which is like it's an authentic Japanese film and it looks like it's got the exact same style It's but it's got no crossover with the writers, directors or production company mm. but the end of Shin Godzilla Godzilla gets frozen in the center of Japan and like spoiler alert sorry oh no they stopped Godzilla oh no who to thunk it who to thunk it but like this like he like looks frozen and I'm like is this a sequel or not? I have That's no idea. That's so weird. I have no idea. So this one's directed by Yakashi uh, Yamazaki. So I, I don't. I think this is his first Godzilla film. I just did a quick little Google. So yeah, yeah I'm really confused by this. And finally, speaking of concert songs, we got uh, Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. She's copying Taylor Swift now. I Excellent. Guess. I thought Beyonce already did one. Yeah, I think she did. Uh, maybe yeah. she's doing another one. Money, 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 money. Yeah. The cinema spectacle. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. No, we aren't. We're actually doing a director's corner. Jake, this one's been long overdue. It has been. And it's funny because Stephen just name-dropped him a few minutes ago. (laughs) He's on the game. Next week on the show, Zeke, we're talking about Mel Brooks and his classic Blazing Saddles. Torn from the fiery pages of the mightiest annals of the West comes the supreme saga in the great tradition of frontier drama. Francis. He rode a blazing saddle, he wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. A corrupt politician hires an African-American man as a sheriff of a small town to drive its residents away. But his plan backfires, but the townspeople take a liking to the new sheriff. A black sheriff? (laughs) (laughs) It's like that one old guy on your screen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This looks nice. This is... Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad we're finally doing Mel Brooks. Spaceballs. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually hoping... I've never seen Spaceballs. I'm hoping to tick that one yeah, off the I'll, list. I Please, Cop, I would love to hear you guys talk about it. It is yeah, so funny. We'll, we'll get that in next <laughs> um, week. And I, I, the only Mel Brooks film I've seen, I've seen is The Producers, which I only watched like five or ten weeks ago. Yeah, I'm going to do The Producers hilarious. too. I've done yeah. Blazing Saddles and Men in Tights. So, nice. uh, oh, excellent. Uh, Got to go the other way and do the... Yeah, and I want to get this Young Frankenstein. I want to get that in too. The man, yeah, the man was one of like those real pioneers of that satire, self-awareness, political commentary. Yeah. If only he um, did a Napoleon film. Yeah, <laughs> he'd be uh, a great Napoleon, actually. Would Charlie him Chaplin Napoleon. be a great Napoleon? Charlie, well, Charlie Chaplin, he did a Napoleon film. I'm oh. not sure if you know about this. It was like it was like a cancelled in production film because he was getting outed for being a communist. 
fest at the time. <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> Among other things. Sex fest. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A few things going on there. A few yeah. other things. Oh, um, oh goodness. But, um. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on the show, Stephen. Well, yeah, I just wanted to say, guys, obviously this will be my last appearance on the show. I just wanted mm. to congratulate you guys for... um on air and personally for you know um being very entertaining you've certainly got me through a lot of a lot of hard mondays in the office and um I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people that have listened in over the years have really enjoyed your company and your expert analysis and um yeah i, I hope to have you both on, on my podcast going forward and i hope this isn't the last we hear of your uh lovely raspy voices thank you, <laughs> you i'll take lovely soon. raspy any I day know, of the week exactly now well thank you Stephen, for being one of our very long-time listeners and uh, participants in the episodes as well. So, Excellent. Go. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sasha podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And I was Stephen. And we'll catch you next week with Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Yeehaw! He rode a blazing saddle. Yeah, it'll make sense.